From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Knee and hip replacement procedures are among the most common elective surgeries done in the United States. And the average age of patients undergoing joint replacement operations is actually decreasing. Why the trend? The younger age of patients is partly due to increasing obesity in America, but also reflects a generation that hopes to maintain an active lifestyle well into their retirement years. On today's program, we'll learn more about the two most common joint replacements, knee and hip, from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also in the program, we'll discuss when genetic testing might be appropriate for some women with breast cancer. And everything you need to know about getting an MRI scan. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Joint replacement involves removing parts of an arthritic or a damaged joint and replacing them with metal and plastic or sometimes ceramic, and that can replicate the movements of a healthy joint. The most common total joint replacement procedures in the United States are total knee replacements, that's about 700,000 per year, and total hip replacements, about 100, I'm sorry, 400,000 a year. Hip and knee replacements are among the most successful operations that have ever been done. And that's over a million total joints <laughs> a year lot. between the hip and the knee. Well, let me give you a little history about this because it's really interesting. The, the first hip prosthesis uh, was invented by a gentleman by the name of Austin Moore, one of the very first, in 1940. And he was from, I think, Columbia, South Carolina. And it, it, it was only a ball with a stem on it. It didn't replace both sides of the joint. And it was used mostly, I would say, after fractures that they had difficulty fixing, occasionally for arthritis, although they replaced only one side of the joint. And then along came Sir John Charnley in the 1960s, and he invented what he called the low-friction hip joint replacement, and it was both a ball and a socket. So it consisted of a, a metal stem with a ball on it, which I think originally was stainless steel, uh, a plastic cup, which was polyethylene, originally Teflon, mm-hmm. and then both these components were cemented in place with an acrylic cement that we borrowed from the dentist. Wow. The dentist had used for years. And that was the original total hip arthroplasty. 1962 or so was the first one in England. And then uh, a gentleman who was chairman of our department, orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Mark Coventry, went to England, learned how to do this procedure, came back to the United States and did the first total hip arthroplasty right here at the Mayo Clinic <laughs> in, I believe it was 1969. So that's the history of total hip arthroplasty. That's 49 years ago. That's right. And now 400,000 a year. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> well, here to help us understand why and how joint replacements are performed and who's a candidate for the surgery is Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Rob Truesdale. Welcome to the program, Dr. Truesdale. Great to be here. Dr. Truesdale, nice to have you. So tell us first of all, a little bit about the, the hip joint. All the joints are a little bit different, but the hip joint, a ball and socket joint? Yeah, that's right. So if you look at joint replacement surgery, probably the most successful one is the hip replacement now. And one of the reasons, there's many of them, one of the reasons it's a, it's a ball and socket joint and, and how it moves is relatively simple compared to, say, a knee joint, an elbow joint, or a shoulder joint. And the engineers and the people that have designed the implants have uh, really replicated pretty closely what the native hip is. So a lot of patients that get a knee to total hip and get a total hip 
kinematically or how it moves is almost normal. So a lot of these people feel not normal, but very close to what their hip was like when they were in their 20s and, and 30s. So it's a ball and socket joint, and mechanically that we can replicate with the implants that we have. Lots of times you'll hear people say that they get one knee done, they have to get the other knee done. Is it the same with hips? If you get one side done, do you have to get the other done? Uh, maybe, not necessarily. And, and same is probably true with the knee. The indication for surgery really two or three things should happen. One, they should have disease or arthritis, and that's loss of cartilage bad enough to warrant the surgery. Two, non-operative things should have been tried and failed, and there's a lot of good non-operative things you can try with here for knee arthritis and hip arthritis. And the pain should be bad enough to warrant the surgery. So if you get one hip done and the other hip bothers you a little bit, but it's tolerable for you, many patients go for years before they need or have the other hip done. And what are the most common causes? Obviously, osteoarthritis, wear and tear arthritis is, is probably number one, but there are other things that might require a hip replacement, right? Sure. So wear, loss of, it's really loss of cartilage or damage to the joint. So wear and tear arthritis, so-called osteoarthritis, is one of them. And, and interestingly, usually that's caused by something else. In the hip joint, it's often caused by mild structural problems in the hip. For many patients, dysplasia where the socket doesn't cover the ball as well as it should or subtle malshapes of the femoral head or the ball of the hip joint. Something you were born with. Something you were born with or developed over time. In the knee, it's often, uh, it can be trauma, can be subtle malalignment problems or ligament problems. So someone tears their ACL playing soccer when they're 18. Not uncommonly, 40, 50 years later, they're from the instability. They get uh, loss of the cartilage that leads to the, uh, leads to the total joint. And what should be a patient's realistic expectations after after the surgery? I know it's going to feel like their old hip joint uh, most of the time, but it's not the same as what you had. It's not Mother Nature's hip That's joint. correct. I mean, it shifts you what I call to the right, meaning to the improvement side, but it's not the same hip that a normal hip you have when you're, when you're 18. But it's a marked improvement from a severe arthritic or loss of cartilage chip joint. And, and the recovery rate now, it's, that's one of the things that's really changes quick. But people continue to get better after the surgery, really for a full year, year and a half after the, uh, after the operation. So it's a great joint. Most people can do pretty much whatever they wish with the joint, but it's not the same that uh, you have when you're 18 or, 18 or 20. Dr. Shives had said the surgeries in the 60s, that was a stainless steel hip. Uh, is that still the case? Uh, it actually is in some implants. So the majority of people in the United States now get uh, a technology where we don't use that bone cement that Dr. Shives was, was talking about. We put it in, and the bone grows to the implants. Those are made of titanium primarily, and the ball is made of either ceramic or cobalt chrome. There is a cemented hips that we still use that's proved very durable that is still stainless steel. also comes from England, similar to what John Charnley utilized. That turns out in, in certain patient populations is probably the best hip and, and lasts for those patients forever, really. So there's different materials depending on your age and activity level. Your doctor can talk to you about what hip implant is best, best for you. What do you use and what's the, what's the best and why are there different kinds? Yeah, so there's different kinds and types because the wear characteristics of these materials uh, vary and are different. And in the lab, uh, some materials wear a little bit better than others. The problem in humans, once you put the materials in humans, some people can react to the various uh, 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 materials that are made. So although something may wear in the lab very well, in a certain patient it may not do well because that patient may react adversely to that. 
Presently, 98-plus percent of total hip replacements done now in the United States and North America and Europe are done with a, of, of either metal or SRAM or rubbing against a fancy plastic called highly cross-linked polyethylene, which is basically a new and improved plastic to what John Charnley was, uh, uh, was using. And the wear characteristics of this plastic are amazing. It wears, for the mathematicians out there, it wears 0.02 millimeters per year which is really microscopic sort of sort of stuff. So tell us about the, the surgery itself. Back in the day, it would take three to four hours to do the surgery, and patients routinely stayed in the hospital two weeks afterwards. Completely different now, isn't it? Yeah, it's really changed. That's one of the big changes that happened over the last uh, you know, 10 or 15, 15 years. People stay typically at, at our hospital overnight now for the surgery, although there are some centers that do it as an outpatient, Pros and cons of that we here at the Mayo Clinic don't feel that's proper for most patients, uh, uh, maybe a select few. So most patients stay overnight. Surgery now used to take three, four hours to do. Typically, uh, a surgeon will you know, spend 45 minutes to an hour and a half, depending on the situation, to do the, do the surgery. The anesthetics are markedly improved. So you do the surgery in the morning. Often those patients are up and at them that afternoon and the same day of surgery. All right. What about we hear so much about minimally invasive surgery? What is that, and is that a good idea? Yeah, I'm not quite sure what that is. I mean, I guess that surgery on someone other than myself would be minimally invasive uh, surgery. I mean, surgery is invasive. Let's not fool ourselves. Once you put a skin knife to someone, uh, a, pa- a patient's skin, it, it gets invasive, whether the skin incision is three inches, four inches, or six inches long. And there's a perception that the skin incision is important. It really is not. It really what goes on underneath the skin to the muscles, the tendons, and the ligaments is what's important. Everybody now, I think, in the United States and Canada that's doing total hip release, they're doing what we call sort of rapid recovery total hips. Uh, I'm not sure minimally invasive is the right term. I think it's a misperception. Uh, so I'm not a big fan of that term. But uh, the way we do the surgery and the way we handle the soft tissues, there are lots of different surgical approaches and have done well. They all work very well, really facilitates a very quick recovery. So in my practice presently, patients stay overnight in the hospital. They're on crutches for an average of 10 to 12 days, and then they're back to the gym at two weeks. Now, we know that this is one of the most successful operations ever of any kind, uh, but they do fail. And when they fail, why? Yeah, so that's changed over the last three decades. So when John Charnley, you mentioned, first did hip surgery, and you were right, it was 1962, he used a Teflon cup. That Teflon didn't very, wear very well, and a couple years later, he switched to this fancier plastic that wore much better, and the plastics we've got now were even better yet than what John Charnley was using in the, in the 60s. So now the most common reason for failure is not wear, actually. That's used to be a common mode of failure. Now, and the failure rates are relatively small. So 10 years from surgery, you've got about a 90 to 95% chance of the hip being fine 10 years after surgery. And the reason for failure can be infection, people get in accidents and break the bones around the implants, uh, or instability where the hip can pop out and dislocate from the joint, which happens in about 1% of, uh, of the patient population that gets a, gets a total hip. All right, we're talking with orthopedic surgeon Dr. Rob Truesdale about total hip and total knee replacement. Time for a short break. Yeah, when we come back, we're going to move down the leg. We will discuss the knee replacement surgery. And as a matter of fact, it doesn't matter who does my knee or hip surgery. We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Rob Truesdale, who has probably done as many total hips and total knees as anyone in the country. I'm not sure about that, but he's probably pretty close. (laughs) Uh, We're talking about uh, hip and knee replacement, and knee is up next, but first this myth or matter of fact. It doesn't matter who does my knee or hip surgery. Dr. Truesdale, is that a myth or a fact? 
Well, semi-myth, I would say. So uh, when you pick a surgeon to do your total lip or total knee, it's important. So you should pick a surgeon that uh, uh, sees patients with your condition regularly and does the operation that you need regularly. And once you've found that physician and he works at a hospital you're comfortable with, uh, it, I think it's fine to have your surgery done anywhere you wish as long as the surgeon's experienced in that uh, in that procedure. And that applies now to the hip and knee surgery, probably other procedures uh, procedures as well. So how the surgery is done is critical. There's no question about that. When it comes to knee and hip uh, replacements, are patients getting younger? They are. Uh, uh, well, no, patients are getting older. All of us are aging with time, <laughs> Tracy, uh, I think. But the p- patients we're doing hip and knee replacements on are, are getting younger. And, and part of that is the materials have improved and the techniques have improved that we think it'll be more durable in the younger patient population. And certainly doing a total upper total knee in a 40-year-old's a, a, a little riskier endeavor than a 70-year-old because the 40-year-old statistically is going to live longer than the mm-hmm. 70-year-old. Having said that, we've got teenagers we've done total joints on when you weigh the pros and cons and depend on how disabled they are. But it's a bigger deal doing a total lip in a 25-year-old than a 45-year-old than a 75-year-old. And because the materials have gotten better, the surgery's gotten better, some surgeons, including us at the Mayo Clinic, have, have opened it up a little bit to younger patients depending on how severe their disease is and how crippled they are. So give us a, a quick lesson in the difference between the, the hip and the knee and why the knee is a little more complicated. It is, yeah, and uh, the results of hip and knee surgery are both very good. Uh, the durability of meaning how long you last is, is very good. The way the knee moves is a little more complex than the hip. The hip's a simple ball and socket joint. The knee, and the medical term for that is called kinematics, but how the knee moves is very complex. And the implants we have to replace people's knees are very good, but they really don't mimic the motion or the kinematics of, uh, of the native knee. So what does that mean for patients? That means in a total hip population, if you get a total hip, you've got a 90, 95% chance of saying, well, my hip feels not normal, but very close to normal. In the knee joint, that probably drops down to the 80, 85% that say that. So there's about 10, 15 plus percent of patients that totally still have a little bit of ache in the knee from the soft tissues and the muscles and the tendons, ligaments. Why that is, we're not exactly sure. A lot of research is going on looking into that fact. I think it's because of the way the knee moves. We're good with the implants, but they're not uh, they're not perfect like the knee you had when you were when you were a kid. More difficult to recover from a knee replacement than a hip. It is, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I think one is the way the knee and hip moves. That's one issue. Second, the knee is a more superficial joint. It's closer to the skin. It's not covered as well with soft tissues. Uh, so if you bang your hip on on the kitchen counter, usually it doesn't hurt patients too bad. You bang your knee against the kitchen counter table. It'll hurt a little bit, a little bit longer. So it's a little slow recovery, uh, the knee than the uh, than the hip for probably a handful of reasons, but still a very good life changing operation for those patients that uh, that need it. The anesthesia general for uh, both these procedures? Yeah, so the majority now we do uh, uh, one at here in at Mayo we do one shot spinal, so it's uh, spinal regional anesthetic, uh, uh, and they often get a local anesthetic block at the time of surgery, so. The pain relief or the pain after the operation is really a lot less than it was 10 or 15 years ago. And there's many patients that have this operation that just take Tylenol or an anti-inflammatory agent for pain control afterwards. But you should leave that up to your doctor. And if you need a little extra pain medicine temporarily, that's a very rational thing to use. Is the main reason why people get a knee replacement, like you were saying earlier, is it arthritis or is it because of the obesity epidemic? Well, they're related. So it's arthritis. So we do knee replacements for arthritis or loss of cartilage. It turns out that the obesity epidemic, which is real and prevalent in uh, in the United States, is a major risk factor for arthritis. So those people that are heavy set 
are at higher risk statistically of getting arthritis in the hip or knee than those that are uh, that have a, a lower body weight. Have uh, we ever been able to figure out uh, why in certain individuals, and it's a fair number, one side wears out and the other doesn't? Uh, I don't think we know exactly why that is. I, uh, it depends on the etiology of the arthritis. So if it's, the arthritis is caused by subtle instability, say, of the knee, um, that knee may get over time because it's unstable and not functioning properly with the ligaments, get arthritis. And if the other knee is not unstable, it may not. Or there may be mild malalignments. You've seen patients that are, uh, that are bow-legged or their legs are bowed. Those are patients at higher risk for arthritis and they have the legs straight. That may not get aware of the cartilage as the bowed leg would. Then how about replacing just half the joint? I mean, it seems like that has come back, back into vogue, where a person will have arthritis only on one side of the knee joint, the inner or the outer side, and you replace just half of it. Yeah, for the knee joint, that's a very good operation for a very select group of patients. So if you just have disease or arthritis in one part of the knee, replacing that part can be very successful. The big plus of that is it's a smaller operation. Those patients feel a little bit better because it's a, a, a smaller procedure and the way the knee moves uh, is simpler than a, a total knee. turns out that replacing the inner part of the knee is a more successful operation than replacing the outer part, what we call so-called lateral compartment disease. So that's a very good operation for a select group of, uh, select group of patients. Like you had mentioned earlier for the hip surgery, is this just an overnight surgery? It is. Well, and the partial replacements where you replace just part of the knee Often that's done as, that's done as an outpatient very mm. safely. Yep. Yeah, but it's also just the total knees are just overnight now. The complication rate uh, similar for the hip and the knee? It is, but the profile is a little bit different. So the infection rates are a little bit higher with the knee than in the hip. And there's a handful of reasons for that, but it's still very small. Infection rates with the hip are way less than 1% with the knee. In most series, they're hanging about 1%. Um, dislocation is not a risk with the knee like it is with the, uh, with the hip joint. But subtle instability can happen with the knee after knee surgery where the ligaments aren't working properly. And that gets back to who does your surgery. There's a lot of technical expertise during the operation to make sure the ligaments are balanced properly and so the knee's put in properly, which has a correlation with the outcome. How long is a new knee going to get you? Is it 10 years? No, so just like that for most patients, especially if you're over the age of 50 or 55, statistically that joint, will, if it's done well, will likely last you forever Wow. for the majority of patients um, that get a knee. I guess you better go back to work because you got. Uh, we do 1.1 <laughs> million of these uh, joint replacements a year. I know you do a lot of them, and it is part. The number is probably not going to go down with the aging population, is it? Yeah, there's good data on that. The projection over the next 10 or 15 years, both the hip and the knee are going to really skyrocket with the uh, baby boomers coming of age and and uh, wanting to still and stay active, which they should do. The benefits of activity outweigh all the negatives, so it's really going to be a life-changing operation if you uh, if you need it. We've been talking with an orthopedic surgeon from the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Rob Truesdale. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks for having me. So to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss genetic testing for women with breast cancer. And later on in the program, we'll get a lesson on MRI. What is it and why would you need one? Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. A group of researchers from Mayo Clinic and Exact Sciences Corporation have completed a Phase two study looking at a set of DNA markers to help test for liver cancer. 
The researchers say current tests for liver cancer are not very sensitive, and most patients who need this testing do not have it easily available or are not able to receive it often enough to be effective. So the researchers developed a new simple blood test using abnormal DNA markers that are known to exist in liver cancer tissues. They were able to confirm that the abnormal DNA markers were present in the overwhelming majority of blood samples that came from people with liver cancers. They're excited that their DNA markers were able to detect more than 90% of patients with curable stage tumors. The next step will be to try out the test on a larger group of patients. And in other news, okay, you're ready to drop some pounds and get your body ready for the beach. But what's the best way to lose those pounds, exercise or start a diet? Well, Mayo Clinic's Dr. Donald Hendrude says diet and exercise exercise can play different roles. He says for weight loss, diet seems to be more effective than physical activity because you have to do huge amounts of physical activity to lose weight, but you can get a better energy deficit just by cutting down on calories. Now, once you get your beach body to keep the weight off, Dr. Hensrud says exercise is much more effective. So both diet and physical activity are important. Diet, probably more important for losing weight and physical activity for keeping it off. But it certainly never hurts to focus on diet and exercise at the same time. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. When a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, and especially if she has a strong family history of breast cancer, she may want to consider genetic testing. Genetic testing can be used to determine if someone has a change or abnormality in their genes, known as a mutation, that make them more likely to develop certain diseases like cancer. Deciding to undergo genetic testing is a personal decision, and it's important to understand what type of information you may learn from that test. Here to discuss genetic testing, who, when, and how, is Dr. Lanzetta Neal, internal medicine specialist and physician in the Mayo Clinic Breast Diagnostic Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Neal. It's nice to meet you. Well, thank you very much, Tracy. Dr. Good Neal. Good to see you, Tom. Thank you. Nice to see you. She's my neighbor. I, yeah. <laughs> meeting. <laughs> You're having a little celebration at the breast clinic now. Yes, we do. This is the 25th year that the breast clinic has been in operation at Mayo Clinic. That's a lot of patients over 25 years. Oh, you got that right. Hmm. I think we've helped a lot of people. What percentage of breast cancers are hereditary? Is this something that anyone who has breast cancer should be thinking about? Not really. Hmm. It turns out that 5 to 10% of breast cancers are hereditary. About 15 to 20% are what we call familial, and then 70 to 80% are just sporadic or random. Familial means run in families. Yep. How's that not hereditary? Right. So there are other factors that we take into account. When we're looking at uh, these families, you know, it looks like they have this horrible family history. And we run the genetic tests we have available and find out that they're negative. Now, part of that could be that, um, you know, we just haven't figured out whether or not there's a gene that fits that family. But we think that it's mostly due to environmental fa- uh, factors. So uh, consider that in a family, um, you're sort of born in the same place, raised in the same place. You're all eating the same food for Thanksgiving. And what in that family is particular to that family that 
just sort of contributes to these findings. So tell us about genetic testing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a whole new field in, in medicine. What, what exactly, what, what is it? Well, let's think of it this way. You know, we're all born with uh, 46 genes, or chromosomes. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, a chromosome is just a giant strand of DNA, and a section of a chromosome is a gene. Sometimes, most of the time, the genes are working just perfectly, but sometimes there's either an inherited defect from one parent or another or both, and sometimes a gene will just sort of break down on its own and stop doing the job that it was originally meant to do, which is programming correct structuring of body parts or how a body part works. So it's a failure of, uh, you're looking at genes, basically, Mm -hmm. in this big strand called uh, a chromosome. That's right. And you're looking for an abnormality in a particular gene, or or when you do DNA testing or genetic testing, are you looking at all of the genes? When we do DNA testing for a gene mutation, we're sort of focused on the genes that we know that contribute to correct structuring of breast tissue. And how do you know who should have genetic testing and who shouldn't, who doesn't need it. Yeah, that's that's been tough. And uh, there's a group called the National Comprehensive Cancer Network who's come up with some rules when I'm, when I'm talking to you, I'm talking about breast cancer, as to who should get genetic testing. And so we're mostly interested in women who are under 50 who have breast cancer, Women who are under 60 who have triple negative breast cancer. Are you guys familiar with that? Mm -hmm. Well, estrogen, progesterone, and HER2. There's three three, uh, biomarkers that we look for. But if all three are. That's another show. That's another (laughs) show. We have done that show. That's good. (laughs) But um, if all three of those biomarkers are what we call negative, meaning the cancer is not using estrogen, progesterone, or HER2 protein to grow, and you're under 60, we would be interested in doing genetic testing. And then should the relatives of that person, if they get the green light that they should go ahead and do genetic testing, everyone else should? Or if one person does it, anybody that's blood-related to that person is also positive? You know, we're mostly interested in first-degree relatives okay, or male relatives. So if my grandfather had breast cancer, I'd be pretty interested in determining whether there was a genetic mutation that caused his cancer that might have been passed to my mother and then passed on to me, or passed to my father and then passed on to me. How do you do the test? It's a simple blood test. So you draw mm-hmm. a small sample of blood? That's and correct. Where's the test done? Well, we have several different labs across the country that we send it out to. We don't do these tests at Mayo at present. And what about cost? Well, it turns out that if the conditions, meaning if the reasons for doing the test are correct. Legit. Legit, (laughs) thanks. um, That a lot of insurance companies now are looking into covering the costs, including Medicare. Really? Yeah. And what, how much does it cost approximately? I'd say 38 to $4,500. There's some people, though, that would say, I don't want my insurance to know that. I don't want them to cover mm-hmm. it. I don't want them to know it yeah, because I, they might hold that against me for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, uh, discrimination laws 
um, are being looked at. I think uh, there's a law called GINA, GINA, G-I-N-A, which is the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act prohibits discrimination. And that works fairly well for medical uh, discrimination, for like, things like life insurance, sure. uh, other insurance policies. You want to investigate that because it varies from state to state. There's an important piece of this puzzle, and that is the genetic counselor. So explain yes. oh. what a genetic counselor does and when they are called. We look for certified genetic counselors, and they don't just do cancer. You know, they do a lot of maternal, fetal, um, and other developmental sorts of things. But you, you remember I said under 50 with breast cancer, or if you have a first-degree relative who had breast cancer under 50 or triple negative under 60, um, and it was your mom or your sister uh, or your child, uh, then that's when we really want them to weigh in on whether or not genetic testing should be done. So we really defer to them a lot. Do the results of the genetic testing ever change your recommended treatment? Yes, they can impact that because you can imagine that, say you carry a BRCA gene mutation that's associated with breast cancer or ovarian cancer. We will talk to women about surveillance. So uh, compared to me, since I don't have a family history of breast cancer, I started screening mammograms at age 40, and, um, you know, I get a clinical breast exam once a year, and I do monthly breast self-awareness. But say you had a first-degree relative who had this sort of mutation that puts them at a pretty high risk for developing breast cancer in the future those people would start screening 10 years before the age of the youngest affected relative. Their screening would consist of more frequent clinical breast exams, where someone who knows how to do a really good breast exam would do that twice a year. And in addition to screening mammogram, we would probably add in an annual screening breast MRI. But and that's would, at this point in time. What woman would ever know that she's got a BRCA gene unless she had breast cancer and had genetic testing? That's right. Or had a relative who went in uh, or had breast cancer early and went in and had that genetic testing done. Is there anybody, any woman who hasn't been diagnosed with breast cancer that you would recommend have genetic testing to see if they have this gene? Well, mainly the ones who have a first-degree relative with breast cancer before the age of 50 or triple negative or bilateral breast cancer before the age of 60. Well, congratulations on 25 great years at the Breast Diagnostic Clinics. Good to have you with us. Mayo Clinic internist and breast cancer expert, Dr. Lonnie Neal. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Good to see you both. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, what you need to know when preparing for an MRI. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Hearing from your doctor that you may need to have an MRI scan might leave you feeling a little bit anxious. MRI stands for Magnetic Resonance Imaging. It's a non-invasive way for your doctor to examine your organs, your tissues, your skeletal system, your bones. Head to toe. Most important part of the body. (laughs) That's right. It produces high-resolution images of the inside of the body. and It's absolutely amazing technology that can help diagnose all kinds of problems, and there's no radiation. Hmm. 
Anxiety for patients can come from fear of feeling claustrophobic in the MRI machine or worry about what that scan might show. Here to give us a crash course in MRI 101 is Mayo Clinic radiologist and division chair of body MRI, Dr. Philip Young. Welcome to the program, Dr. Young. It's nice to meet you. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Dr. Young, great to have you on the program because we've never really covered this topic or at least not very well. Magnetic resonance imaging. There are magnets in there. Yes, you bet. The machine itself is a very powerful magnet, and we use that magnetic field strength and radio waves to extract powerful images of patients' insides. So radio waves and a a big magnet, because you have to be very careful about going into this, the area of the machine with anything metal on your body, right? That's true. The, The fact that it's a magnet does pose some potential safety concerns, and so we actually have um, an MRI safety committee that really reviews all of our policies on a regular basis. We screen patients uh, ahead of time, and if patients have concerns, they can always call ahead and ask ahead of the appointment. What's the difference between an X-ray, a CAT scan, and an MRI? So X-rays and CT scans use photons, and that causes some radiation to the body, whereas MRI uses magnets and radio waves to extract that information. And there's no radiation involved because if you have enough CT scans over a period of years, there can be some concern about the amount of radiation your body receives, right? That's true. There's at least a theoretical concern that with ionizing radiation, as you would get with X-rays or with CAT scans, that the cumulative dose can eventually cause some problems with your DNA. That's not a concern, uh, at least uh, to current medical knowledge, with MRI. Are there some contraindications? Uh, Are there some patients who can't have an MRI for whatever reason? There are a handful of patients, particularly as I alluded to before, with certain types of implanted devices where either we cannot do them or we can only do them under certain very controlled circumstances. And so we have special procedures in place to allow us to do those and involve our MRI physicists. We we monitor the way that the scanner works in those cases and sometimes interrogate uh, medical devices before and after the procedure. Why, when I get my MRI, does it ask if I've got tattooed eyeliner? Well, some sorts of tattoos have metallic pigments in them, actually. Some of the the red tattoo has iron in it, for example, that can be something we have to consider in terms of Hmm. MRI safety and screening. I know one of the problems that you have, and my patients have sometimes uh, been unable to have an MRI scan because of claustrophobia. It's very close in there. Yeah. So if you think about it, the MRI scanner is shaped like a donut. And the imaging takes place with the patient inside the hole of the donut. And so that sort of confined space can be claustrophobic for patients. Now, at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, we'll do somewhere in the order of 100,000 exams this year. And it happens a couple of times a day that a patient has some problem with the the claustrophobia or the the closed space. There are a couple of things we can do for this. We do uh, sometimes give patients a medication as they come into the scanner to reduce some of the tension. We also... Uh, have larger diameter scanners where that inside of the the hole of the donut is bigger. So the standard size is about 60 centimeters. And we've we've invested uh, a fair amount in the the larger diameter bore scanners that can fit either larger patients, for one thing, or they have their less enclosed feeling. And more patients feel like that extra 10 centimeters buys them the ability to get through an exam more comfortably. Why are they so loud? (laughs) 
Yeah, it, it has to do with the, the way the machine works. There are very powerful gradient switches that are going on in the sending of a magnetic field. There's been a lot of effort recently to try to reduce that noise. Really? And we do um, have some newer technology that reduces the noise, and, and we're, we try to be conscious of patients' hearing as well. So we, we generally give patients earplugs to try to uh, improve the comfort uh, of the exam. And if patients are uncomfortable at any point during the exam for any reason, claustrophobia, the noise, or just not comfortable with the time something's taking, we always give them a squeeze ball where you can essentially squeeze it and ask for help, and we can pull you out and talk about it and figure out how to proceed. Would you believe I've fallen asleep in my MRI before? <laughs> not me. More than once. More than once I have. I, I always fall asleep in the scanner. Yeah. <laughs> how, uh, how do you prepare a patient for an MRI? Yeah, I think that um, if patients... Uh, have specific questions about the type of MRI they can certainly address with their doctor or call us in radiology ahead of time if they'd like some more information. We try to give patients information in what's called the PAG that they get ahead of time. Uh, one thing to know is that the, the, the scans are variable in their length. They can be as short as a 40-minute appointment, and they can be an hour or two hours or longer, depending on the, the complexity or the number of body parts we're trying to scan at one time. One of the most important things that patients uh, know is that the, their cooperation in holding still can make a big difference in terms of the quality of the exam as it comes out. And we try to be very communicative between the technologist and the, and the patient about how to optimize the quality of the exam as we're acquiring it. Are there any side effects that patients need to worry about, any potential problems, any long-term complications of having an MRI scan? Have you ever seen any? So generally, no. Um, like I said, there are some, some uh, safety risks in patients, particularly with certain devices. Um, like a pacemaker? Yeah, that's like that. one sort of example, um, and things like deep brain stimulators and other devices as well. There, there, there are too many for any individual patient to sort of try to keep track of. So we devote quite a bit of effort up front trying to, to manage the risk and, and reduce it and screen for patients uh, who have any potential issues ahead of time. Every patient's different and every, every problem is different. So there, there are different ways that we handle these problems. When we scan 100,000 patients a year, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out the best way to handle all sorts of complex problems. And the, the exams are much faster than they used to be. They certainly are. How many scanners does Mayo have? About 40. Unbelievable, 100,000 exams a year. Is there yeah, anything... and we're scanning from 6.45 in the morning till 9 o'clock at night, and then we certainly have people on call and available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, 52 weeks a year for all the you know, complexity of practice our size can see. Is there anything that people should know about what to do after the MRI is completed? Generally not. Uh, the reports uh, are generally out within a business day or so. The patients can you know, check with their doctor if there's you know, anything uh, sooner coming up that we try to accommodate patients who have surgery on short notice and those sorts of issues all the time. All right, no problems post-op. It's pretty amazing, amazing. It is. You've had how many? I've lost track of the number that I've had. And that's I, the last thing I was going to ask. If you have so many that you can't keep track of how many you've had, can I? are there any side effects of that? No, Good. actually. So the Mayo Clinic does 99,000 MRIs a year plus Tracy. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> MRI Scans 101 with the Chair of Body MRI at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Dr. Philip Young. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at Radio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.